0: Welcome to the Citizens' Report. It's the 31st of July. I'm Robert Barwick, and I'm joined today by the Citizens' Party's Victoria State Chairman and a researcher for the Citizens' Report, Jeremy Beck. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks, Robbie. In this week's episode government ducking the bail in truth and the foreigner whose single vote controls Australian democracy. Before we begin, I just want to um, introduce you if you don't already know, to us to a parallel show, a new show that we've started here um, from the uh, studio of the Citizens report, which we call Citizens Insight, which is an interview series we're doing with different people around Australia. To have something to contribute to the to the um, uh, the political knowledge of the country. Now, there's a the latest show that's up there is an interview with a a Mildura businesswoman, Louise Ackland, who is uh, um, uh, very active in the local agricultural committee in uh, not committee but community in in uh, Mildura, and she's promoting the need for re- regional development. If you haven't watched it, you, you must watch that show. If you want an insight into the kind of optimism that we could have about how to get past this economic crisis we're in, have a look at that. Now, later today, I'm going to be doing an interview for the next episode of the Citizens Insight series with the economist John Adams, who has been a, show, a, a guest on our show, The Citizens Report, a few times in the past. But John is going to come on to talk about the latest involving some of what we'll talk about today, bail-in, and what the financial system is up to. So that, that should be up next week. But please start watching those shows. If you're a subscriber to us on YouTube, make sure you click the bell icon so you get the notification when these shows are up. They're worth watching. What you don't get from our shows is reading tea leaves. We're not here to read tea leaves, to tell you what might be happening in the financial system so you can make you know, um, speculative movements and worry about what to do with your money, et cetera. We are here to save the country. We are here to get solutions passed so that we can all benefit the whole nation can benefit that's what that's the citizens party's approach to the crisis that we're in all right so there's lots of other stuff on, on youtube that's effectively reading tea leaves what i can tell you i watched plenty of that stuff none of it most of it can't be proven right you just you're just dabbling in speculation what we the, the reason we can do what we're doing is because we're not trying to say what might happen we're trying to make it happen and that's the, that's that's why you get involved in what the citizens party is doing watch these citizens insight shows for more of that nature. So that said, we have a rather exciting show today because we've got an excellent update on bail-in. Government ducking the bail-in truth. And um, what we're witnessing, Jeremy, is quite extraordinary because the the we've got the Senate inquiry underway into the bill Malcolm Roberts put up, the Banking Amendment Deposits Bill, which is a simple bill which will clarify the law to do what the government claims it intends, which is not bailing deposits, but all we've tried to say is there's no clarity in the law, right? And the government, though, does not want this bill to pass, and so it's in in a tough position because so far, the inquiry that we've seen has proven our point that there is a lack of clarity in the law. The government's saying there's no clarity, but the inquiry itself proves that, all the contributions that have been made. And what the government is trying to do is keep a lid on the debate. We'll give some specifics in a second, but I want it first. I want you to see just an example of how more attention is coming to this. Um, so we're going to play a, a clip from Alan Jones' show on Sky News earlier this week, where he interviewed the uh, chief of the the, uh, the economics editor of the Australian newspaper, Adam Crichton, and they talked about bail-in. So watch what Adam Crichton says in response to Alan Jones.
1: Before you go i want to flag something with you because australia is a member of this g20 now in 2009 mm. i'm getting a stack of correspondence on this it asked this outfit the financial stability board to devise a new policy to ensure that future banking crises could be resolved without taxpayer bailouts and this mob the fsb financial stability board devised bail in so that unsecured and mm. uninsured creditor claims could be quite unquote converted to bank equity and shares. Now forget about all of that. The reality is they've defined unsecured creditors as including mm-hmm. depositors. And Australia well, look, endorsed this in twenty eleven. Right. What is the risk well, look, here? Is right. What's the well, risk is here? Right.
2: Look, the government insures deposits up to $250,000 per person, I think, but certainly anything beyond that can indeed be bailed in. And and look, just, just a broader comment on our banks, I mean, they are very leveraged institutions. They're only safe because we think they're safe. Mm. Uh, you know, for, for every $100 of bank assets, there's $5 of shareholder funds and and all the rest is debt. So, you know, that's a fragile institution in a recession. So. We, you know, we have to realise that's a reality, but, but, and, and to be quite honest, since the financial crisis, they didn't improve the situation that much.
1: No, but, but given that people watching you now are depositors, they've mm-hmm. got money in the banks, bail-in yeah. means the bank can appropriate those funds to avoid having to be bailed out by government. Uh, when yeah, was this that's explained, that's right. When was this explained <laughs> to Australians by the government of Australia?
2: Well, look, it wasn't explained, and you know the financial system is extremely misunderstood by ordinary people. But look, if they have less than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, then they shouldn't be too worried. Eventually, the government will will make good their deposit if there is any problem with the bank. But if you've got more than that, then you know you might not have it if there's a if there's a bank failure.
0: So, Jeremy, what's extraordinary about that is, um, despite we'll talk about what he, what Adam Crichton was mistaken about in a second, but. The economics editor of the Australian newspaper is now the most senior person to confirm that deposits in Australia can
3: be bailed in. And how weak the banks are. That's quite extraordinary. His comment about how the, the banks are really just based on this confidence that really uh, there's nothing much to back it up.
0: Well, he's no dummy. And mm-hmm. that's why he took it seriously. Because what, what is bailing for? Failing banks. Right. And he, he understands the connection. But he is mistaken about the $250,000.
3: Oh, Absolutely, because as uh, Dr. Wilson Sire, who was uh, you know, the, the chief researcher at the the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority that, that looks after this issue in, in terms of banking regulation, he said that the financial claim scheme will not protect anything, anything at all, because it's not even activated. And the whole point of it is, is that when, when the, the bank fails, uh, you'll, you'll have that financial claim scheme. But... The, the whole point of bailing is it happens before the bank fails. That's right.
0: The government has said it has admitted, has admitted it has discretion about whether to activate the financial claim scheme. Most people don't even know that. They think it's automatic. No, it's not automatic. The government has discretion and it only ever applies after a bank has failed. And that's why we think we're pretty sure Adam Crichton's wrong because the the $250,000 guarantee doesn't even come into it when it when it's a bail-in right and the way the bail-in law is shaped in australia um it gives maximum discretion to apra and apra has enormous power Um, you cannot rely on that at all and it's just another way another point to prove that this is an unclear law and it must be clarified and there's a bill in the senate to actually clarify that Um, the other developments though is this is the because the government's trying to keep a lid on this. You've now got extraordinary behaviour by the Senate committee, which is the Economics Legislation Committee, and the secretariat is becoming a gatekeeper. And we've criticised this committee and this secretariat before of being a gatekeeper. What they're trying to do is present a one-sided debate, right? and the way they're doing that is people have made submissions and then written supplementary submissions or letters that the committee has accepted, but the committee doesn't publish those. It takes, it cherry picks the points that people have made, and some of these points are really important, gives them to APRA, and APRA gets to respond to those in a totally one-sided way, and the committee puts those responses up on its website. So they are published, but all you see is APRA's version of it, right? And one example, which we're putting, we're doing a press release today, which explains this, is that APRA in its latest letter to the committee has responded to a point that we've made in this show and Solicitor Robert Butler made in a letter to the committee, which is that um, APRA claimed it has one paramount objective, and paramount means one, the very top, which is protection of depositors, and that's its, that's its assurance it won't bail in deposits. But that's not true. In the law, it has two objectives, a twin objective protection of depositors and financial system security, stability, sorry. And in the letter, Wayne Byers, the chairman of APRA, says, no, 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 don't think of those as separate because the word and is in there. They're complementary. And if they, were, if they weren't complementary, you'd have the word or. Well, the letter that Wayne Byers wrote to say that was in response to Robert Butler's letter. And in Robert Butler's letter, the solicitor's letter, he already showed that yes, the Banking Act says deposit protection and financial system stability. But it also says deposit protection or financial system stability in a separate place. And that separate place was inserted in there by the 2018 law we're trying to amend. The 2018 law that gave APRA enormous powers, and we're saying including powers to bail in, inserted in their financial system or stability, uh, deposit protection or financial system stability, which means they can be in conflict. And the Reserve Bank Act shows clearly that when the two are in conflict, Financial system stability trumps deposit protection. And the whole ethos, the whole rationale of bail-in is we have to bail-in your deposits to guarantee the, the stability of the financial system. Right? And APRA knows that and they're trying to play games, but they get to do it in a one-sided way. And the reason we're highlighting this is because what the committee is doing in giving, letting APRA do this one-sided argument is wrong. This should be aired transparently and publicly in public hearings. And so the stage we're at now is we need you, the viewer, who's concerned about this. The next stage, we have to demand public hearings. Get on our website for the details. Look at the press release we're putting out today. Call your member of parliament on the committee. Call the senators on the committee and demand public hearings. If we get public hearings... We can make sure APRA doesn't get away with presenting a one-sided version of this, and we can put the government in a position where it has no choice but to pass this bill, which will settle everything, right? No need for a debate. We can, we can actually make sure there's a, that the law cannot be used to bail in deposits. Anyway, so look on the website for details of that. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the foreigner whose single vote controls Australia's democracy. Welcome back to The Citizen's Report. The foreigner whose single vote controls Australian democracy. And, Jeremy, what we're talking about is the implications of the palace letters, which are the letters about the sacking of Whitlam that were written by Governor-General Sir John Kerr to Buckingham Palace and the replies that he got. And these letters were kept away from the public for decades and decades and decades, right? Um, and they've only just been released under extreme duress, court decisions, etc. Um, now, when they were finally released the other day, and uh, there was a, this very controlled, uh, staged event where the, the, the head of the National um, Archives, who was a former ASIO guy, um, you know, went through them all and said, yeah, we can make these public. Um, certain media ran off with the line, oh, look, the letters prove the Queen didn't do it. They were so keen to make that point, And that was led by, especially the Australian newspapers, Paul Kelly and um, Troy Branson. But it's not yeah. even close
3: to being true, is it? Oh, it's absolute nonsense. And Now, I've read numerous letters. Uh, I didn't get a chance to read every single one of them, but I read a lot of them. And there's ample evidence, ample evidence, that absolutely, not only did the Queen have a role in it, she was reading intently basically every letter that went through Sir Martin Charteris who was the Queen's private secretary and Sir John Kerr who it was shows the a level
0: general. it shows it does prove a level of micromanagement from the mm-hmm. palace of the Australian governor general which most people in Australia would
3: be very shocked by mm. and and also uh, Professor Jenny Hawking she was going through enormous trouble in getting these letters released yeah and she was sitting there waiting. She didn't even get to see any of these letters. And they had all the favoured media who were just going to, you know, play it lightly and say, "Oh no, no, the Queen didn't know very much, and it was was all above board." And and Professor Hawking, she, she was standing in the queue and. And she couldn't even see the letters before the favoured media. And
0: the, uh, and the favoured media, that, that reference to favoured media is Paul Kelly and Troy Bramston. That's right. Who ran off with this line, the Queen didn't do it.
3: But not all the media are, are fooled by this. No. I mean, we've had uh, an excellent tweet here from uh, Peter Cronow. Now, he's a, a Gold Walkley award-winning journalist from ABC Four Corners. He's a Four Corners producer. And, and his tweet on the 19th of July, he said... There's no doubt the Queen had considerable detailed prior knowledge of options being secretly canvassed. She appears to be part of the conspiring and the secret plotting for the overthrow of our elected government, and we thought she was there only for cutting ribbons.
0: (laughs) Now, before we... we go into through some of the specifics, but let's just talk about why Whitlam, though, because what we're talking about here is a, a foreigner who is our Queen sacked a democratically elected prime minister. And forget what happened afterwards in the election and whatever, that was the fact, right? right? He was democratically elected, legitimately elected, and and the power of the crown was used to sack him. But why Whitlam? There's so much disinformation around this. We, there's a few things that people need to know, and we can't do it justice here. But Whitlam represented certain things that were a real threat to the establishment. One was a, ve- a strong commitment to economic development, and economic, but in a way that was economically sovereign. And one of that was this buy back the farm
3: campaign, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly. I mean, that, that would have enormous implications for Australia's growth and, and not being so reliant on foreign trade and, and foreign imports if we developed our own raw materials and owned them and value added to them and yeah. had manufacturing, which was the real intention of that whole buy back the farm policy. But you've got to remember, the Queen was the largest shareholder in Rio Tinto, so she had a vested interest in all this.
0: Now, that led to the, the Buy Back the Farm campaign, of course, led to the loans scandal, which became the context of, of the, tra- the political troubles for Whitlam. But I read this book by Jim Cairns, Oil and Troubled Waters, and I actually got to know Jim Cairns very well in his final years. And I probably did the last interview he ever gave with Jim. And Jim was the treasurer under Whitlam. He made the point they shouldn't have had to go with the loans. Um, the foreign loans because they could have should have they should have used a national bank like we advocate today, right? Instead of going get foreign loans. However, that politic they they weren't politically game to do that because that itself would have brought down the wrath of the money power on them. So they went down this other this other path and there was there was a lot of things that were set up. Um, but but nevertheless what they intended to do was buy back Australia and it wasn't Chinese investors everyone was worried about at the time. It was American and British investors. They owned us wholesale, which frankly they still do. Mm-hmm. Um, just two other things quickly on this that, that made Whitlam a threat, though. He, 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 he practised an independent foreign policy, probably the first government in the history of Australia to try and do that, and that brought the wrath of the Anglo-Americans on him. And there was real antagonism between the Whitlam government and the Five Eyes intelligence agencies, which includes the CIA, MI6 and ASIO. And John Pilger, the famous Australian journalist, has actually written some very well-documented material to show that the, the CIA and ASIO had a, definitely also had a role in Whitlam's overthrow.
3: Well, they were spying on him, and, and that was revealed later. Uh, and uh, Whitlam's Attorney General actually organised a raid on on the ASIO officers because uh, they knew that <laughs> these in- intelligence agencies, they weren't the sovereign intelligence agencies yeah. representing Australia, they were representing foreign interests including uh, MI5, MI6 and CIA. So, when, so
0: and, and what people have to understand about that, when the, when the Attorney General of Australia raided ASIO instead of letting, now, now it's ra- ASIO raiding journalists right, back then we, he raided ASIO, he was effectively raiding CIA and MI6 and you mm-hmm. wonder why Whitlam got overthrown. Let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about the specifics of what the letters show. Welcome back to the Citizens Report, where we're discussing the foreigner whose single vote controls Australian democracy, being, of course, the Queen, and the story is that her role in the dismissal of the Gough Whitlam government. Um, So, Jeremy, further what we said just before the break, we also know Sir John Kerr had a background in intelligence. But now, so that... It certainly would have put him on side with what we're talking about with the CIA and MI6, etc. But let's talk about the letters themselves. What they show is the Queen's private secretary, because she's trying to keep her hands clean, right? It's all done through her private secretary, Sir Martin Charteris. But he's speaking for her. He's actually coaching Kerr in his job, isn't
3: he? Oh, all the way through there. Uh, it's very, very clear that he's developing a relationship with Sir John Kerr to push what really is, in effect, British interests uh, and interests of the financial oligarchy, the City of London bankers. So uh, Charteris is constantly having a back and forth. There's literally hundreds of letters, constantly having a back and forth, coaching Kerr on exactly all the different options. And he's saying constantly that the Queen is reading every letter intently and taking an enormous interest in this.
0: And that would have been very flattering to Sir John Kerr. So Charteris... Um, one of the things that Charteris is the one who told Kerr the reserve powers are real. Mm-hmm. Now, the reserve powers, there was a debate about these reserve powers. Would, can, can, can this actually happen? Can a, can a Governor-General sack an elected Prime Minister? And people were debating that in Australia. Charteris is the one who told Kerr that they were real.
3: Well, he certainly did. And uh, even before he told Kerr, you know, this was, we're, we're looking at the time frame here and in uh, early November, did he made that explicitly clear. But even before then, there was a back and forth in, in the dialogue between Kerr and Charteris. Uh, for example, uh, on the 3rd of July 1975, in a letter that actually Kerr sent to Charteris, he attached a clipping of the Canberra Times. And in that clipping, the Canberra Times made it very clear that, that uh, the Governor-General could effectively dismiss Whitlam. Now, I'll just read a bit of the clipping there. It says, the ultimate guardian of the constitution of the rule of law and of the customary uses, usages of the Australian government in a time of crisis is the Governor-General, who has certain clear powers to check an elected government. He normally acts on the advice of his ministers, but there are on occasions when he need not seek or accept that advice. He could, for good and sufficient reasons, revoke the commissions of a Prime Minister, Or of other ministers. And what
0: that's saying, there's an unelected power above the elected democracy. And and that point was all, we also know that that point was being made to Kerr by my namesake, Sir Garfield Barwick, no relation, who was the Chief Justice of the um, High Court. But uh, initially, Kerr is just discussing this as a debate, but but the confirmation does come from Charteris. And then um, Charteris seals the deal doesn't he? Because he, mm-hmm. he, he finds for Kerr effectively a precedent to
3: justify what um, Kerr has to do. Well, he, he definitely does. There's two letters uh, that lead up to that precedent, which involves the, the Canada situation with the, the Prime Minister there. But on the, the 4th of November, 1975, uh, Charterists said that when the reserve powers or the prerogative of the, of the Crown to dissolve Parliament or to refuse to give a dissolution have not been used for many years, it is often argued that such powers no longer exist. I do not believe this to be true." So that was on the 4th of November. The following day, he uses this precedent of the the situation in uh, Canada where you had the Prime Minister there, Arthur Mian, who effectively um, gained power through a dismissal of his predecessor through the Governor-General of Canada Uh, and basically he said it is the Governor-General's duty to make sure that the Parliament is not stifled by government. Uh, So, using that and then, uh, and, and here's the kicker, in the same letter he says, if you do, as you will, what the Constitution dictates, you cannot possibly do the monarchy any avoidable harm. The chances are you will do it good he's basically saying go ahead that's second. and and,
0: for, and anyone who knows Sir John Kerr that's all he needs now, mm. now Jeremy there is an element here though one of the things that we have that we everyone we, we questioned it, other people have questioned it there's a lot of letters flying mm. back and forth between Yarra Lumla and Buckingham Palace but this is in an era where international phone calls were very normal mm-hmm. right do you have the sense that an element certain element of these letters is laying a paper trail yep. To, to lead us in a certain direction while the real stuff was probably just being done over the phone anyway.
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, phone, <laughs> phone lines are, uh, have been going a lot longer back than 1975. <laughs> uh, there's no doubt that they had regular phone calls. The, the, the letters are certainly a paper trail and they are keeping up with these traditions. And, and you read through the letters and there's a lot of formalities and traditions and they like that pomp and ceremony and, and that's part of the letter process. But no doubt that they had many phone conversations. Also, uh, we do know that they had uh, personal dialogue with Prince Charles uh, and John Kerr uh, when uh, they were travelling in Papua New Guinea, and and who knows what those conversations involved. So if you saw the headline,
0: um, the Queen didn't do it, don't believe it, call in and get a copy of the Australian Alert Service, the latest issue where Jeremy has a, a, a detailed article on this, and you can see the the parts of letter the letters he quotes. It does show who still has ultimate sovereign control over Australia, which we have to rest back. That's why the Citizens Party are Republicans. Um, but because we're, we're fighting for our actual sovereignty. So, but anyway, we're out of time. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks to
3: the viewer. Thanks, Robbie.